Welcome to the Acid TR. Alright, folks, welcome to Blackout of Sunrise. Oh, Jesus, I have the wrong page open. <laughs> I was going to introduce you as Julian O'Gorman. You'd be like, I'm not a chef. Today's guest is Mr. Eamon Sheehy, longtime contributor to the Cork, Cork arts community in various guises. He's the man behind Rimbo Records, a now defunct Cork based label, which was releases from Max both here and abroad. He is also a writer whose articles focus on human rights and culture and has spent time working with various NGOs in the area of human rights and refugee issues, which is brought into places such as Russia, the Balkans, um, the Baltic States, the Middle East and Africa. Yeah. Eamon, welcome. Thank you. Actually, first, I, I saw you um, you did a, or you posted something on Facebook earlier about the six hour working week oh, in yeah. Sweden. I That'd actually saw that nice. the other day. Man, that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? If it's going to happen. They say that, the, but they've trialled it in areas, haven't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that productivity is... It's better. Gone up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't well, think we're uh, too... I don't think we're going to get it down here, though. Oh, no, not a hope. But are they are, are they trying to... Are they actually going to try and roll it out in Sweden? I think they are, yeah. Really? I only briefly scanned the <laughs> article now, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it is with Facebook, you know. You read the first line and you go, oh, that sense. That's it's cool. like uh, in I'll between uh, putting the sugar in my tea and going back to the desk in the office. <laughs> you can take an awful Six lot. hour a week, okay. <laughs> or <laughs> sorry, four, four day week. Was it a four day week, was it? Oh no, it was a six, six hour, hour day. Six hour day. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, yeah. if it was six hour day. Six I hour, think four the day four week. day week would be better. Yeah. Do you reckon? Definitely, yeah. And work as many hours as you can in the four days. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Work as little as you can in the forties. Anyway, let's get <laughs> on to you. Rimbo Records. I know yeah. you've a lot of projects going on, and it's kind of like Jesus. You've an awful lot going on, but I'll try and maybe break things up into different little areas. So we might attack yeah. uh, Rimbo Records okay. first. Was it named <coughs> after Arthur Rimbo? Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. Um, when was it established? Uh, two thousand and four. Two thousand four. Yeah. Yeah. Up in Limerick. Oh, was it? Oh, sorry, so it was it started up there, yeah. Okay. It started after um, I saw the killing spree uh, up in Belfast at the Warzone Fest in 2003. And I was in touch with them. I don't know the killing spree at all. Yeah, they were around for a few years. Were they a punk band, were they? Yeah, they were doing kind of um, instrumental uh, kind of matty punk stuff. Uh, kind of a bit of a screamo style uh, thrown in there. Uh, and they did a demo with Mark O'Connor. Uh, he had a studio up in Limerick back then okay. called Balls of Iron. Do you remember that? <laughs> no. Balls, of, Balls Iron. of Iron. Balls of Iron. Mark O'Connor's Balls of Iron. Yeah, so... Um, is, it, is it now defunct as well? Is it? it is. Mark's yeah. in Australia, I think, now. Okay. Uh, he was in Tooth. Oh, Tooth. Yeah, Tooth. Yeah, Jesus, yeah. I saw Tooth. I, I know that there's some touring recently enough, but I saw Tooth in that place next to Baker's in Limerick. What was that called? Was it Flaherty's or Costellos? Oh, Costellos. Was it Costellos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fiver in the door. Yeah, it's gone back a while now. We're showing our age. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so uh, after that was recorded, I got the demo, and I I used to buy records anyway. I was I was buying vinyl and stuff. So uh, we said we'd try and do a seven inch. So that was at the start of it. Was basically to try and get this seven inch record out for the killing spree. And they came down to Limerick and they played in the high stool. Um, and Another fine spot. Yeah. And then we launched the record. So that was the the start of it, really. Like, 
and then uh, moved on into other recordings and other bands then like so there wasn't any moment where you thought okay this is going to be my career now I'm going to no it was purely for the first seven inch Um, and it was just to see how a record is done it was a bit because the band weren't uh, or even the recording process is it or uh, the the recording process was done you know by Mark and the band and then I just got the demo and we said we just try and make a record and they had a tour planned then uh, for um, a few uh, Irish dates and in the UK uh, so it was just uh, trying to learn how to do a 7 inch record and how to uh, so it was a bit of a learning curve I'd on the first so 7 inch yeah, how to get the distribution uh, trading with other distros uh, I used to trade records in a way because I used to collect vinyl mm. I still kind of collect vinyl but back then it was more of a uh, an intensive it was a smaller community yeah and well, there was yeah. a there was a lot of trading going on with mm. uh, you know different uh, records like from the 90s uh, so i used to trade a lot with different people anyway over mm. in, you know in england or uh, europe and the states mm. so it was kind of an extension of that then was this even was it through magazine ads or was it was it uh, online? I, a lot of it was online yeah okay. and zines as well but mostly online and uh so then i'd say there's a big learning curve yeah, it was okay though. Was it? It was yeah. If you're into this and getting you know getting music out there, it was fun. Like, and we only did a few hundred copies. Like, so it wasn't overwhelming either. And the band went on tour and sold copies on tour, so it, it actually worked out perfectly at that. Day. So you didn't have to promote yeah. the shops and all that jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then uh, I did a CD then with uh, Stephen Gatings, who did a, a kind of an ambient project up in Dublin back then. Uh, called Magnetize. Uh, he did a record label there, actually, um, that put out um, uh, a lot of seven inches, uh, like uh, Mud Honey. And uh, yeah, he did a lot of kind of uh, stoner stuff and a lot of kind of uh, obscure kind of uh, psychedelia. But uh, he's done a lot of kind of big bands. But his project, in a way, was more ambient kind of uh, stuff like Spaceman Tree. That kind of vibe, kind of um, drony ambient. Okay. So then that's and and then so that was on CD, and that was tougher because it's harder to sell that. And uh, uh, he didn't play a lot of dates, I guess. Mm. Uh, and then after that, then it just kept flowing. Did more bands, got to know you know more contacts, putting out more records. So cool there was a big variety. A, like it's cool to become a part of that little community as well, though. Yeah. 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 Um. Yeah, uh, I started doing a lot of bands from uh, internationally, so I found that the community aspect of it might have been a bit kind of uh, separated, because it wasn't just an Irish label or just a Limerick label. Um, had a few bands from uh, Italy, uh, London, um, you put Balkans, Belgrade. The Chariot and stuff. Did you and Deerhoof? Did you put out? No, no, okay. no, no, no. All right. <laughs> you put out Gary Suicide with Kids Command. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, French, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were they French, were they? French, yeah. Okay. From Po, down near the French border with um, uh, Spain, okay. or that small country, Andorra. Yeah, they were just right on the, on the border there. But they were, uh, I remember when they came over here, I don't, uh, I don't think they were very well known here. I only found out about them through um, uh, Noel Lynch mm. from El Bastardo. 
and he was raving about their first album and I got a copy of it off of the band or I think I might have got it off Noel actually and then I got in touch with the band and we did the second album they were in the middle of recording anyway and the second album is a, kind of a bigger step on from the first one and then the tour happened and I think that always away. happens though you know you record the first thing and you're like going yeah. when you hit the second you're like oh yeah they know that yeah that's it that yeah, yeah. yeah I think oh, Jesus man I, I saw them in Friends probably would it be 10 years ago maybe would it be yeah it would have been uh, 2007 maybe yeah roughly great band they actually had quite a, quite a few French bands like, they were yeah. decent, decent there was a lot of them coming through back then yeah um, I suppose maybe Christoph and Rave had a connection that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And multi um, and Daria used to come over. Daria oh, were yeah. French mates with uh, the guys from El Bastardo and Revolutions. Okay. So, but um, I think the boys from El Bastardo and Rev went to France a few times. That's right. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were uh, like doing tours. It's like stuff. an exchange program. Forget <laughs> 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 punk rockers. Punk exchange. <laughs> Stay with a family. Poor. <laughs> what have I invited into my life? Yeah. Yeah, but the guys came over here and they stayed for uh, a week out in out in a house I was living out in Blackpool, and it was brilliant, like really good. Yeah. Uh, and they did a, a few dates up the country, up in Galway. They they uh, they kind of hooked up with um, the guys from the Christbunchers. Do you oh, remember the Christbunchers? Yeah. Uh, Tebs, uh, yeah, Tebs and Graham and all them guys. I saw like Christbunchers in Fred's again, but they. Remember Fred started trying to do gigs downstairs for a while. Yeah. They used to set up in the a bar. Band. Yeah, but and it's the smoking area, no actually. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I remember Lake Christ Punchers. Jeez, I remember having a t shirt at Lake Christ Punchers, <laughs> another one I've lost through the years. I had one as well. Yeah. I don't know where it went to. God, I'd love to find my army of flying robots <laughs> t shirt. I'm still lamenting over that loss. You did hope it's nice as well. Yeah. Mm. The Long time cork rocking legends. Brilliant, yeah. Uh, that was uh, in their classic phase. <laughs> <laughs> They're so proud. Their, their, their classic now as well. <laughs> yeah, that was... Um, that was their first full length, wasn't it? The first album. Yeah. yeah. Jeez, that's a great album. Yeah, I'm not too sure how it uh, came about, actually. It's a bit vague. I've seen, I saw them live. Like I think they were like probably one of the best live bands I've seen in the Cork scene. Like They were really um, fresh and they weren't doing the typical hardcore stuff. And I thought that would fit in good with the label because the label uh, kind of was driven by a lot of um, sounds that were mostly not not your typical uh, punk, like your tragedy kind of hardcore or anything. Uh, there was always a few different bands that were doing quirky, weird stuff. And I thought Hope is Nice fits in good with the with that kind of mix. Uh, just doing their own thing. like And live, they were Very shattering deep. live. Like I thought they were one of the... like really are one of the best bands I've seen live I think they had really me- melody driven yeah well, you know, I, I, and like there was no fear of melody either mm. I mean uh, yeah, back then there was a lot of uh, kind of um, discordant kind of stuff yeah and there's a there was a bit of kind of like a cynicism or a cynicism about bands that might have been a bit more um, kind of rocky and kind of uh, you know with kind of anthem kind yeah. of uh, styles uh, so I thought they were a good um, kind of kind of fuck you to people who got a bit too kind of elitist about being you know a not so melodic. crusty punk uh, hardcore mm. like you know which got a bit <coughs> stale I think after a while it's like what we were saying there about Ryan Patterson from Coliseum though you know yeah I remember we were saying like that time in London when I saw him he looked so angry they were playing with Converge and 
now he's kind of moved off into the direction he actually wanted to be and I think he was resisting playing the type of music he was back then because yeah, it was yeah, too yeah. heavy and I think he was doing it to kind of maybe probably f- not so much fit in but because he was they were touring with these type of bands he probably felt that they had to be producing heavy music and a certain yeah, yeah fit yeah. into a certain mood and then you kind of go actually maybe I don't like this maybe I just yeah. want to do more melodic driven stuff yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. I and like the lads did I think they did uh, like they never um, kind of veered away uh, from what they you know what they did or for what they wanted to do themselves like they never really veered to try and appease uh, the scene crowd. or mm. a certain trend mm. uh, you've probably seen that when they go to gigs like or you know they've toured up uh, you know they've played up in Dublin and up the country and stuff they've played with a lot of uh, more hard uh, kind of heavy bands um, they said that about their sound though that they, they've always find it, found it hard to kind of fit in yeah on yeah the, exactly on, yeah, on, yeah, on, yeah. Um, on whatever on, on sh- in shows because you know there might be heavy bands and I'd say promote, they, they, I'd say they got the vibe that promoters didn't know what to do with them yeah. where to put them yeah you know yeah I mean? and that is I think well you know, I've. Uh, it's been a while since I was doing gigs myself, but back then, there would have been the um, kind of kind of ideology of uh, having bands uh, the same style and the same gigs, and you know, keeping it like a package that uh, flowed together, uh, which I don't think is really that necessary. I think it gets boring after a while. It does. Like yeah. You have three bands doing the same thing. Well, not the same thing, but like yeah, this, yeah. If they're all roaring at you. You're like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's all just going to kind of maybe meld together yeah, a bit. yeah yeah i think it's good to mix it up but um i think that uh, album was pretty well received um reprinters or we pressed a lot of cds anyway and a lot of them sold um i think there um, was like a t-shirt slash cd deal there was i couldn't i i, I actually missed the t-shirts i don't know what happened but uh, i missed out on it the was t-shirts. that old one it was like a tank i think owen from was it Owen that designed it? Yeah, Do you that? that's it was right. Like, yeah, it was like yeah. a stick drawing of a guy holding up a flag in front of a, an army tank or something. Yeah, yeah. I think that was maybe that. I think that was part of the album T-shirt. I never, I never package. got one. I was a bit gutted over that. <laughs> that's probably Dan's fault. <laughs> Fuck you, Dan. <laughs> Fuck you, man. <laughs> Get on of my life. <laughs> but so, um, did the two kind of flow well together for you? Like the having the label and maybe putting on shows and stuff yeah it's uh it needed to be like that because um i started off doing sh- uh shows up in limerick gigs up in limerick um i put on a few hardcore gigs up there because there was no real heavy music coming into limerick back then um so i put on the dagda and uh um, hero dishonest they're a finnish hardcore band from helsinki they're mental they're like a a drunk version of Minor Threat. Oh, they're they're Jesus. off the rails. Like. That sounds absolutely bonkers. They they are they are uh, they're kind of up there with Army Flying Robots when it comes to the the wild kind of hardcore thing. They really push stuff out there. Uh, they played in uh, in the Boat Club up in Limerick. I don't know if you remember the Boat Club. The Boat Club was a uh, kind of a boathouse that was on a little island on on the bridge as you're going out in this road. It was pretty cool, anyway. They, it was like bands had played, and you could see the river in the background. It was it was a cool place, like. Uh, and they put on La Quietia, the um, Italian screamo band. I don't know if you've heard of them. No, I've never heard of them. They were pure, they were um, fast, kind of uh, like two minute blast, like, but they were really good. But yeah, so yeah, it, like it kind of fitted the label then to have the shows going on uh, every month. Maybe put on the 
a few gigs, uh, you know, and sell you know sell records mm. at the gigs because there was no it was slow for mail order, and you would sell a lot more at gigs. You know, you just set up a stall, and uh, or else jump Plus on people have a few points in them. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, guys wake up in the morning with CDs. Go, what the fuck is this? <laughs> As we've all done. Listen to track one and go, oh no, what have I? I've done it again. <laughs> But um, yeah, so it did. Uh, it worked really well, like, and it was really good fun. And I had, it, I was in the position where I could, uh, you know, put up bands in the house. Um, yeah, the guys from Hammerheads came over from the states, and this days they, they were mental. Um, well, a lot of them are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, a lot of bands came through, and I, uh, yeah. So it was actually good for the distro. Yeah. But, uh, were you working as well as yeah okay. oh, I was working yeah okay. I used to talk. work nights which uh, was another thing that played into the label was that I I uh, had a lot of free time at work I guess because okay. I was on a night shift <laughs> the graveyard shift <laughs> the graveyard shift yeah so AKA I the could rainbow shift <laughs> <laughs> so I could process my uh, mail orders I could update the websites oh, yeah, nice. send emails do some trading <laughs> We won't say the name of the company you work for in case this is your Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was good. And um, I don't think there's any, uh, like, even even at the time I was doing the labor, I don't think there was any um, kind of uh, illusion that I could make a living out of it or something like uh, I think Ireland is too, Ireland and Europe is too small for that. I don't even know if you can do it in the States. I know people are doing it in America, but I think it's, it's one of those at things. At a DIY that, kind of level. Yeah, it's... I was asking actually, um, oh, I was asking Chris Colin about that. I was like, you know, is there a, is, is there even a point to it now? You know, because I saw there's avenues for bands now to kind of release stuff on their own. Yeah, you know? most Band a lot of bands are doing it on their own. Yeah, mm. um, is that a good or a bad thing? Good, I think it's very good. Yeah, uh, but then again, I did uh, kind of stop doing the label. Uh, so, uh, it's when did I, it finish actually? Uh, finished um, with the, the last record was the Dow uh, 10 inch from the States uh, that was probably the last I think that was the last one Dow and the Gary Suicide Kids Commando CD I used to do sometimes I used to do like releases in batches together I used to have a uh, a few months where I was hyper productive okay. and then I go into a few months it's like the doing Christmas package nothing. deal yeah <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was um, uh, that was uh, on the tour that they did with uh, Ultra Plagues. Uh, there was Dow Ultra Plagues, and I'm sure there was a tour band in there. They toured UK and Ireland. Um, what's his name again? Like Moloch, the their uh, English uh, Doom. Okay. Um, Jeez, and the guy from from that band uh, ran a Feast of Tentacles, the record label. So we did a split. The two of us did kind of a co-release of the Dow. Uh, 10 inch that would have been just after Dow did the Tyrant LP and then after that uh, they did Peasant and that was picked up by Southern Lord and they've been I think they've got like 20 30 records out now they've just been a powerhouse of just creating vinyl, like, yeah, yeah, yeah and they are an amazing band like mm. but uh, yeah that was yeah, the last that was a, f- a relatively big name though in, yeah, in yeah, certain yeah. circles I suppose I remember back then they asked me if uh I wanted to help out with uh, an LP, like a full-end, like you know, which would have been probably the peasant record. 
but I just said I better leave it to Southern Lords, you know. <laughs> Don't want to be stealing all the thunder. <laughs> you could have but said uh, a Southern Lord, fucking <laughs> Cork Lord. <laughs> That's the Irish version. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they were, uh, they were. I don't think they were well known back then but they were like you could hear it anyway when you heard the, the music it was it was just it just yeah. blew you away like, you knew right there was on. potential like oh it was there was no doubt like it mm. was I heard a tyrant record and I was like fuck this is serious stuff like really and then within uh, I'd say a year they were on Southern Lord and every other record label with any bit of uh, credence uh, was on them as well like Level Plane put out their stuff and a few other biggish kind of record labels uh, but um, yeah, I just got tired of doing the, did the label. Really, okay. financially it was uh, hard. Did um, you uh, did you ever make any few bob out of it, or was it? Um, no. Was there many losses? Like yes, mm. uh, there is. Uh, it's I think it's the same with everyone who does a record label. You're gonna have the the ups and downs. You're gonna have the losses and the gains. Like so, the Dow record would have been a gain. Uh, that would that sold out very fast. Uh, you have other uh, releases but that balances out something else it does that, that's yeah. it yeah that's it and that's uh, and like it was no kind of uh, reflection on the other bands or the other releases like you know it's just the way that it was your fault really wasn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's just <laughs> why didn't you promote the fucking record <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way yeah it's just the way um it's just the way it's the record way it labels. Goes. It's just yeah. the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. you can never like, really judge what people are going to buy no, or want to buy. No. And like you can be sure as well. If I sent uh, Dow Records into magazines, they'd fucking review it within uh, a week or two. If I send in some other records, they could be they'd sink to the bottom of the pile. You know, it was uh, you'd have that kind of thing where uh, trends tend to kind of you know kind of like dominate the stuff that gets covered, and at the towards the end of the label. I found uh, a lot of stuff went online. Zines started to kind of disappear over the space of a few years. And everything went online. And then the online content was very much dominated by um, either bands that were bigger or more trend-based uh, kind of uh, bands that maybe had the context there, you know. It's like even looking through the likes of Metal Hammer nowadays or something, you yeah. know? It got tougher. There I was think a time it, it, when Metal Hammer was kind of informative about really good stuff, you know? I yeah, yeah. I haven't picked up a, a copy of it in, God, so many Weeks. years. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved over to Smash Hits again because <laughs> I find it's a lot more informative. <laughs> and they do a little TV guide at the back. <laughs> so I know it's on TV3. <laughs> but yeah, man, it's just, yeah, I, I think maybe because information is so readily available now that maybe they they have to put stuff in their magazines that people want you know the, the obscure stuff won't sell for them you know what i mean yeah because yeah there's a lot of uh, i suppose it's um kind of uh they're just submerged with a, a lot of uh content and yeah it kind of got tough at the latter at the end of the label anyway i was getting tired when if you start getting tired of doing a record label you might as well just shut it down. I think like there's no you can't. It's almost like being in a band, you know. Yeah. 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 So you know, you know, when so uh, I suppose it just has, you know, you know, a shelf life. Yeah, and it has uh, run its course, and um, and then if you have a few releases, then you need bands to tour as well, like to sell any uh, record, like. Um, and sometimes that's not possible if they're working yeah stuff, I mean you know? everyone's everyone's got a you know either family or day job or lives going on around stuff like so and it even gets trickier as people get older because 
yeah. commitment to become more yeah, more exactly, you know? yeah, yeah. it's uh that's probably it as well like i mean i was in my 20s when i was doing the record label and uh as soon as i kind of hit my 30s a lot of i had a lot of other stuff i wanted to do so it kind of had to wind down you know so but, uh, it's nice to have it done though you know it's, it's, <laughs> it's like another little chapter and yeah, yeah it yeah. went on a bit longer than expected like but <laughs> <laughs> how long did it survive for so did it go on for six years uh 2004 uh 2000 and uh i have it written down there somewhere <laughs> the years oh yeah uh, you did tell me <laughs> don't ask you dates <laughs> the dates i want uh, the day i want the time <laughs> um Maybe 2008, 2009. Not a bad old run, though, is it? No. Oh. Uh, how many records? Have you have you been left 13, with a 13 or 14. Oh, Jesus, yeah. 14 releases. Have you a boxes of stuff that you've never sold? Or <laughs> is there a room in your house <laughs> with loads of CDs in it? Is there a skip somewhere in the room? <laughs> I don't know the stuff it is. No, a lot, I've cleared out a lot of stuff. I ran the distro uh, for a good bit after I stopped doing releases. Uh, just as supposed to get rid of uh, whatever was there, and uh, I st- I probably have a few records and a few CDs, all right, yeah. yeah, but nothing. It's not a case that they're holding up the bed or anything, or uh, filling up wardrobes okay. or presses. Um, Four thousand CDs <laughs> under the bed. <laughs> but uh, I did uh, <coughs> at the start, like on the second release, like which is a magnetized uh, CD. I pressed a thousand copies of that. So that kind of taught me the lesson of moderation when it comes to obscure music. <laughs> you know, you can't uh, be mass producing stuff that, you know, that isn't going to sell loads because like, it's not exactly accessible, you know. I think bands even learn that, you know, if you're doing mm. your own thing, you're like going, OK. Bands do want to press like uh, 10,000 copies, but the reality of it is touring, you know, um, you know, like the distribution these are the these are the factors that are going to have to be worked on, not the, you know. I suppose a band really have to consider what they want to do with it. You know, if you're going, yeah, if they print ten thousand copies of a CD and then just kind of sit around play, yeah, play fucking pro soccer or something. You're kind of going, let's. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to work for you, you know. Because I think it's because bands put a, a lot of you know like there's a lot of effort gone into creating uh, the recordings and the uh, albums and the artwork and and uh, you know even live gigs and stuff. That's uh, when the record is made that they, you know, that they might assume that, okay, just leave it, see how it flies, but it doesn't fly. You have to, you have Work to push it, it like yeah. you know. Yeah. Actually, I kind of learned that I was in a band called Costa Medina, and we. Oh yeah. We printed up. Um, I don't. Know. <laughs> I've, I've seen a few of your t-shirts as well, actually. <laughs> Probably like, maybe a hundred. <laughs> I'd say I still have like sixty of them upstairs. You know, you're like. I should have really known my audience. <laughs> Forty would have been plenty. Oh, fuck it. Actually, it's all part of fun. It's all part of fun. Let's move on to Aim and the Writer and the Traveller. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you have a website called Migrate to the Fringe, yeah. which hosts a lot of kind of stories you've written through the years and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of it seems to be affiliated with a lot of travelling you've done and a lot yeah. of the kind of more social and human rights um, um, aspect did did the writing come about as as a consequence of the travel or was it had you always been into writing before you even got into the the whole traveling thing um i started uh well i guess it 
uh, for the website and for the content, uh, this kind of social narrative that started uh, when um, I used to go traveling a lot in in around seven or eight years ago, two thousand and two, two, three, four, two thousand and five, and uh, I went to Russia for three months in two thousand and five. I quit my job in Limerick, and that's when I moved down to Cork. But um, um, I took three months out and I went to Russia and I started working with um, an organization that uh, helps uh, um, street children. Uh, oh, yeah, because I read there's a piece you wrote about kids in, is in Perm. Is Perm, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Perm's in uh, uh, Central Russia. Uh, so I spent a month with them and uh, I spent another uh, few weeks with a conservation group uh, in Eastern Russia. And uh, when I came back then from from there, I came back, I came down to Cork and that's when I kind of got into the social aspect and uh, I did some studies and social studies and started working with asylum seekers. Here in Cork, is it? Uh, yeah, mm. uh, up, you know, up at the Kinsale Accommodation Centre there and uh, I started teaching asylum seekers and doing a lot of work with uh, Sudanese refugees and Persian refugees. And um, that's where the writing kind of came in then. I used to write a lot before, uh, but it was always just uh, either on a personal basis or else uh, doing interviews with uh, bands for zines. Plug uh, unfit for consumption. <laughs> Brought to you by Trevor Meehan. <laughs> Trevor Meehan. Yeah, so that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was my, that was, you know, the extent of my writing back then. I did some uh, stuff for zines in Croatia as well. That would have been even before Trevor came along and saved me from that. <laughs> Brought you back into the life. <laughs> Probably back into the real world. <laughs> I just started then to focus more on the social uh, aspect because I was doing a lot of um, volunteer work in that area. And I figured uh, as a volunteer as well, sometimes you can't really do what you would wish to do. That you don't trying to help more. Um, and I used to travel a lot then as well, and a lot of weird s- shit would happen when you're traveling. And uh, it's not like you're traveling to like Lanzarote or you know, no, 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 holiday resorts. Because I was looking through, yeah, the list of places t- uh, I mentioned at the start, but you've been to like Russia, the Balkans, the Baltic States, the Middle East, and Africa. You know, yeah, it, it's kind of happened by accident. Some of it, the um, <laughs> like. like Years ago when I went to the Balkans, it was more of a, I suppose, you know, just grabbing a bag and going backpacking around. Uh, and it was always cheaper to travel in Eastern Europe anyway. And I used to get uh, a, a few weeks off during the year for, from work and stuff. And uh, I was in the Balkans around 2002, 2003. Uh, 2003. And uh, I started coming across... Um, I suppose like there was a fallout from the um, from the Yugoslav wars, and I, it was probably the first time I started to see uh, a society uh, in a kind of a fragmented state. So um, yeah, um, it was the same thing when I went to Russia as well. It's it's not as stable, and you can see that uh, the the uh, I suppose the weaker people in society tend to fall. Um, you know, um, over to the wayside and there's a lot more, it's more of a visible thing on the street, you know, old people begging, street children. And then uh, in the Balkans as well, there's a lot of uh, 
uh, there's a kind of a split between you know like certain communities you could be traveling through the southern uh, area of uh, Bosnia and it's more of a Muslim uh, area and then you go over to the eastern part of Bosnia and it's uh, Serbian and there's a there's a it's very um, kind of real and very obvious that there's splits so the social writing took off from traveling around these areas like and I took it more uh, on board after I stopped doing the record label uh, I had more time I suppose to do writing and I took on a degree as well so um, I was you know I was kind of studying in the area anyway and I still like traveling so then it, it just came together as kind of a natural kind of symbiotic almost is there any unease as such you know when you're traveling like you were saying there like the when there's a obvious like social divides between between like say like you were saying the Serbs and the Muslim the Muslims in Bosnia yeah is there a, a kind of a sense of unease when you're traveling there or did did you have any um hassle? no I thought it was okay um I've never really had any major problems uh, traveling in any of these areas that I know they make the news a lot and stuff but I've never had any massive uh, issues um a few small things might have happened along the way like but uh I think that most of my problems have happened in Western Europe. Really? Like, yeah. <laughs> Where did you uh, get slapped in the face? Actually, remember we were saying about that earlier. There's a story on your website about you yeah. getting off a bus and some yeah. kid slaps you in the face. Uh, that was in uh, Sarajevo, uh, just uh, in 2003. And that was um, uh, coming through uh, just kind of a waste ground in the sea centre. And uh, I was with a friend of mine at the time. And uh, these kids were walking by. And one of them just walked straight up to me and slapped me in the face. Back then, there wouldn't have been a lot of tourists uh, traveling to Bosnia at all. Bosnia would have been a bit... Um, it still had a stigma from the war. Uh, you'd have people going to Italy and uh, Slovenia would have been pretty cool to go to. Croatia was kind of getting a bit popular. But uh, east of that, Bosnia and Serbia and Albania and Kosovo... Uh, would have been bad. Kosovo was it was ex- was in the middle of a crisis back then anyway, so it was a no-go zone. Um, so it was very strange to see something like that happen. And uh, a lot of people asking you why you were there. A lot of these kids hadn't even seen foreigners. I mean, this is only uh, a guy in his teenage years. Like, wouldn't really have seen foreign people coming in as tourists, you know? Uh, especially when the foreign, I suppose, like the international, um, the international, like a community, uh, pretty much ignored Bosnia uh, for years and the uh, Sarajevo siege went on for three and a half years was that 95 when it finished yeah. Okay. Uh, 90 yeah it would have been around the mid 90s um, why was it ignored do you think politics I think and I mean you know to have a city in Europe under siege for three and a half years I was uh, I was uh, at home in Kerry and I remember seeing it on TV the the siege would have been on TV, like, you know, the bombings of the market in uh, central Sarajevo. Uh, and during the Eurovision, the Eurovision was back in Mill Street. And they, had to, fly the, they yeah. had to fly the singers from Bosnia over to Cork or over to Ireland. Uh, but then again, the media, I think, at the time, pr- uh, really uh, pushed uh, Sarajevo and, you don't, and the whole Yugoslavia as someplace very far away. Even though it's, it's only... Um, I mean, if you want to go to Sarajevo, it's probably only like uh, eight to twelve hours from Italy. It's not that far driving, like you know. 
you'd be there on a flight in two or three hours. Like, you know, it's it's really near. It is it is Europe now, but back then it would have been pushed away as some place near the Middle East more than anything. Yeah, yeah, some problem is one that no one wants. No, yeah. you shouldn't go there. But uh, I've never had any problems traveling any uh, any of these places. It's funny um, that it was ignored though for so long. It's you know, very sad, yeah. You know, yeah. It's the same in Syria now. It, you know, yeah. Everyone's giving out now about the refugees, but this thing has been going on for years. It's not a, a, it's not a new story. Like, uh, there's been people trying to cross the Mediterranean for years as well. It's, you know, it's terrible. But, uh, I think when Gaddafi was ousted, so yeah. to speak, in, in Libya. Oh, was that beep? <laughs> That's because you mentioned was Gaddafi. Was, yeah, was that you? No. I think that got a lot of press at the time you know I suppose and a lot of people would have uh, maybe through Facebook and Twitter and all this that uh, the news spread rapidly you know yeah, and the yeah, problems yeah. in Libya and stuff and it was like oh well that's kicked off and oh now it's kicked off in, in Syria but it's, it's this like you're saying this isn't like in the dawn of troubles yeah, you know, yeah, it's, been, yeah. it's been going on for a while how long has the Assad regime or regime been in place there? His father was there uh, for, it's it's you know it's like a f- uh, a family a family kind of a dynasty really, mm. um, a dictatorial dynasty. Yeah, basically, yeah. Mm. His father was in there for years, and then um, his brother, uh, I think, uh, died, and Assad, who's in there now, wasn't really chosen to be there. He was a doctor in the UK. And uh, but then he had to fill in the the role. Um, it's a funny one. I was reading there. Um, uh, well, I know I, I think I, s- I got the link off of your website, but uh, maybe yeah. I didn't. But the, this guy Raid Al Faris, and he's like um, I think he's like a, an activist in Syria. You know, an activist yeah. in for the sake of the Syrian people, the ordinary people. Who was I think he was th- there was an assassination attempt on him recently enough, but. I think it was January 2014, someone tried to kill him, shot him in the chest, but he, he yeah. survived. But Oh, yeah. Uh, he's up in uh, Catherine Bell. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I think I know he runs about actually now. Yeah, yeah. But he was saying, like, it's it's almost like they're really caught between a rock and a hard place. The, the regular, normal Syrian people, they're caught between the, the Assad regime. And then there's the the kind of Islamic State stuff coming from, from Iraq. From yeah, exactly. Uh, from the yeah, yeah. So it's like, but he was saying that they reckon that... Um, that the two regimes are kind of work or associated with each other in it. It's yeah. almost like that. Uh, I don't know what the benefits is for them, but it's like the, basically the Syrian people are just getting fucked basically. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's really sad to see, man, you know, I did an interview with uh, them, I think uh, for um, an online magazine, Kosovo 2.0. Uh, they used to make these banners. They still make them every Friday. If you, if you look on Google or look on the internet for Catherine Bell, uh, the Catherine Bell um, town, like the community, the activists make a banner every Friday. And every Friday they post a banner up online. And it's a lot of the comments on being kind of forgotten about by the international community, as Sarajevo was. I think and I saw that. Did they have one like, we're sorry, Tony Soprano? Don't yeah, please exactly. Help yeah, 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 yeah. And I think uh, um, last Friday they were uh, posting about the Russians, or was that... Uh, over the uh, over the last two or three days, they've been posting about the Russians are flying over at the moment. So it's another factor uh, affecting just a small town. You know, people trying to survive. Really, like you know, so these, uh, the Russians, Al Qaeda, and 
Yes, and I yeah, and you have you also have like uh, the Al Nusra front as well. They're you know they're another Islamic um, group, like, and um, I think it's just natural in a power vacuum you're you're going to have a lot of kind of opportunists coming in. You wonder where it's going to go, you know? Like it's probably why like larger powers don't want to get involved because you know it's like you know Russia and then if America and get involved, I think. Maybe they're fearful of what. what there's a, the, yeah, what there's kind of a proxy off. war happening. Mm. But um, I went to Lebanon last year to uh, do uh, just to see the place really, and to, um, to do uh, an article with a youth group that was uh, in uh, West Beirut in the Palestinian refugee camps. Uh, so that was uh, pretty uh, um, eye-opening, and there was a lot of uh, Syrian refugees in the camps. So it seemed from from the way that I could see it was that the like for the last uh, you know thirty forty fifty years there's always been camps in you know in Lebanon but now they've they've started to soak up the Syrian crisis as well there's a lot of Syrian refugees uh, being taken into the poorest areas of uh, Tripoli or Beirut and um, it's very strange to see uh, like these are cities that are modern cities with a uh, you know, uh, you know, strong kind of economic hubs, and in the poor, you know, the poorest districts, taking in Syrian refugees, it's, uh, it's, it's, it might be down to kind of a class, kind of a, you know, a class hierarchical kind of system. Yeah, kind yeah. of a separation of class, maybe. Mm. Um, I saw a graph actually, or a map of the, the like the Middle East and the divide. Of countries at how many refugees or they were taken and like like yeah. Saudi have taken none, Oman have taken none, the UAE have taken none. You know, it's just like they're not willing to take any any refugees yeah. whatsoever. And uh, I don't think a lot of you know a lot of the refugees even want to go there as well because uh, Saudi Arabia doesn't really have the uh, you know the good name to you know it's a place you wouldn't want to take your family. Mm. I'd imagine mm. uh, they are you know they don't have a popular name mm. or a popular um, uh, a popular uh, reputation I guess yeah, yeah. and then you have places in like Lebanon taking in four four million plus probably even you know, more than that now like. what's the population of Syria actually do you know don't know, don't know I don't do numbers man <laughs> <laughs> <That's what laughs> only on your phone yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, it is. Uh, it's a mess, really. Like you know, and you don't know what it will lead to. It's 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 a bit funny though. That uh, you know, Ireland and Europe are complaining about taking a few thousand, and then there's millions coming to Lebanon. Lebanon is is what the size of Lebanon, the size of Ireland, is it? It's, yeah. it's 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 probably smaller actually. You could you could drive from the north to the south of Lebanon in six hours. Okay, you could cross the country in three. You know, that's how small it is. Uh, yet they have four million. You know. Uh, four million refugees, refugees yeah uh, let's see who's number and like it's not like the streets are overflowing there it, they can still kind of take that amount but it's, you know it is killing their uh, social sector is you know it's, it's affecting the hospitals it's it's you know it's uh, a big mess but um and then you have europe complaining about taking a few thousands even though you know like europe are making loads of profit out of these wars france has got a massive arms industry you now that's Thriving, 2015, a big bump per year for France. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's yeah. ridiculous. Like, last week there was a um, an arms trade over in London. Really? Yeah. And uh, 
there was a, a member of, I think, uh, oh yeah, Amnesty International were actually stopped of, uh, of uh, sending a member into the arms trade uh, fair. So, yeah, it's, it's really, there's a lot of stuff going on, I think, that, that the mainstream media won't cover, really, uh, or you know, like they probably think that readers don't really want to be reading about it, or it's not popular enough, you know. So, give them celebrity Big Brother instead. <laughs> yeah, and I, I presume there's companies in the states as well making huge money from from selling arms to the. Oh people. yeah, I saw it recently. Did you see? Um, you know there was a shooting recently of ten. Was it in Oregon? Portland, or just near Portland? I think. Yeah, but uh, Obama was on. Gave a little bit of a spiel about it, but he was talking about the gun laws and stuff and. He was just comparing it to like, you know, seatbelt laws, you know, like, you know, he was like, you know, found out that seatbelts prevented yeah. deaths and accidents. So now we have seatbelt laws. So you're kind of going, yeah. it's a simple philosophy that you kind of go, okay, if putting on a seatbelt prevents you from dying in a car crash, wear it. If taking, if more stricter gun laws are in there to control mm. the sale of guns, you know, it's going to be safer for people. But he was kind of lobby groups will come out and go you know what will make us move safer yeah. more guns you know and he's like, yeah how ridiculous is that you know but yeah i don't know it's a it's a it's a mad old world anyway we'll move along yeah. russia you've been to russia but you've been refused visas yeah on the, in the last two occasions have you yeah i have yeah why was that uh i haven't been given a reason uh from the russian embassy um i've heard that before actually they don't no they don't really uh, uh i went into the russian embassy the second time and uh, I was told that I wasn't a real tourist. Uh, that's I was leaving. I, it was a, I was going uh, on a short trip to Saint Petersburg to visit a friend. Uh, so I decided to collect a visa at the embassy, and um, I was refused. And I was just told I wasn't a real tourist. Next, please. And that was all I was told. So it was it. I was just left there. Hint signs up in the Baltic states, but um. Then uh, last year, I had, had you written a piece on it? Or uh, I did uh, an interview with uh, a journalist called uh, uh, Fatima Tilsova. She's um, a refugee, or I guess you call her a refugee from uh, the Caucasus, from uh, Nalchek. It's just near Chechnya. Yeah, it's in the, the uh, North Caucasus. Uh, so she's uh, a She's currently a journalist with uh, Voice of America. She does a Russian uh, a website for um, a Voice of America. And uh, she did an interview with a few different people, including myself, about uh, laws that were being put in place for uh, people from the North Caucasus. Um, there was a law imposed uh, where their movement was going to be where the movement was going to be restricted into the major cities in Russia, like St. Petersburg and Moscow. They're trying to discourage the Caucasus uh, from kind of moving up into the bigger cities. Mm. Uh, since then, then that's uh, I haven't been able to get a visa. I presume it's to do with my, uh, you know, with that interview. But it might be. It might mm. just be. So well, the, you're not a real tourist. It's kind of. Yeah. Kind and of the fun. last time I had plans then to go on a tour, um, I was going to do a bit of a writing project about the North Caucasus. Mm. Uh, going from uh, Sochi uh, over to Grozny over to Dagestan and uh, maybe opting up to um, the city called uh, Rostov-on-Don which is just near the, U just near the Ukrainian border uh, that whole sector these days is not is kind of out of bounds for tourists 
Um, although there is people going on tours there, more organised tours. And I was refused my visa for that as well. Uh, but then again, that area is a volatile area. Um, and the North Caucasus are uh, a few... It's it's kind of a mix of a few different republics, uh, and they were overtaken by Russia in the nineties, and there's been wars there. Like the wars weren't given a lot of coverage, but um, Jesus Christ, I've heard of them here. Yeah, actually. there was uh, a lady called uh, Anna Politz, uh, Anna Polit, Anna Politkovskaya. Okay, I don't know if you've heard of her. She was uh, she did a lot of um, articles and books about the Norcoxes, and she was uh, assassinated a few years ago. Uh, in Moscow uh, to do with her work uh, there was a lot of um, there was a big war the, you know the war uh, practically um, flattened Grozny and then the Russians came in it's, pu- it's after being kind of uh, Russified I guess okay, okay. Um, indoctrinated so, into their yeah it is a very sensitive area for Russia the Caucasus and they've lost lots of troops to the Caucasus for the wars it's a mountainous area and the people are pretty strong when it comes to fighting back. Like, uh, Yeah, so that was uh, the end of my Russian adventures. <laughs> so maybe after Putin decides to step down and give somebody else a go, you I might, might get, get in. <laughs> you should write a letter. So what's next in terms of writing for you? Have you got writing projects ongoing? Yeah. Um, at the moment I'm doing um, a writing project to do with uh, Tangiers in uh, northern Morocco and um, Ceuta it's a Spanish um, enclave in the northern Morocco so it's part of the European Union in Africa I guess Okay, which is a very kind of interesting place to go uh, I went there last year and uh, I I just finished uh, writing a short piece on it uh, so I'm hoping to maybe bring it out as a book it's going to be maybe 70 or 80 pages with photographs it would be more of a kind of a, a short travel narrative, I guess. And uh, I'm going back to Morocco uh, in a few weeks uh, to the Sahara. And next year, I'm hoping to do a bit on Algeria, um, Algeria, and maybe a bit on the Lebanon as well. I have a bit of a writing project on the Lebanon, and I want to try and continue that. Okay. Will that focus more on the the social and cultural? Um, attitudes there or is it more of a travel diary type thing again uh, I guess more of a travel diary but not uh, on the typical it, uh, I I tend to always kind of go for the social I guess when I'm writing anyway I can't seem to escape it that's probably just down to my character anyway I'm drawn more to social uh, social dialogue and social uh, issues yeah that's that's maybe sometime next year like but at the moment I've just finished the Morocco piece I'm still doing a piece on Russia as well which is a longer project. Um, that's it's more kind of closer to a travel writing. That's just kind of, uh, um, about a trip across Russia and and back again. So um, what else actually um, uh, inspired you to write other than say like traveling? Like you, you, the, the the whole counterculture thing. Does that appeal to you? Were you into like the the beat generation stuff and all that? Yeah. Um, I suppose in my teenage years, uh, I didn't have access to gigs or, you know, I did listen to a lot of punk music and alternative uh, music, but uh, I spent a lot of time in the library as well. I spent, I used to go to the library every Saturday and just okay. sit there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, reading, yeah. And uh, you read a lot of uh, screwed up stuff like this. Is in every library, like everyone has access to stuff like classics, you know, like uh, Hunter S. Thompson, William Burroughs, uh, all these Kerouac. guys. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I have a big kind of a taste for that, like still, like I, I you know, like I collect books and uh, I have kind of dived into a lot of uh, more of the contemporary writers as well. Mm. Uh, that would be along the same vein, but more recent stuff. Okay. And, um, uh, I guess this is tied in with travel as well like a lot of like you know like North Africa and, and uh, Tangiers will be a, a kind of a counterculture city the same with Belgrade Belgrade has a vibrant counterculture as well Russia Moscow St. Petersburg Riga these places have uh, a, I suppose like they have the punk scenes they have uh, you know kind of heavy um, artistic scenes that are pushing the boundaries a bit. Mm. The same with Beirut. Beirut is very different and very vibrant. It's not just uh, a war-torn city. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of art there, is there? Huge, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you know, it's something you have to find, of course. Like, but um, that was kind of influenced the writing as well. The I think that's uh, you kind of have to learn to write as well. Uh, I used to do a lot of you know a lot more kind of journalistic. Uh, pieces because I used to submit to different magazines. I still do the other time um, for like a, what's it called again? Like yourmiddleeast.com and uh, a Kosovo 2.0 magazine. Um, but these are all online magazines. They're right? online, yeah. And the Kosovo one is in print. Uh, so it's, it, you know, all these pieces would kind of expect you to do like a 600, 800 word pieces that are kind of edited down, a bit more snappy, a bit more of a journalistic style. But uh, I'm more kind of attracted to the slow uh, format of um, having a story more rounded with uh, characters. And Flesh with, uh, it all out a bit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that would be kind of coming from, you know, having read a lot and uh, still reading a lot to learn how to have these kind of elements put in there. So Yeah, you're probably, it's like serving your apprenticeship as a... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. like there's no point, I mean, I don't know. I can't write unless I have actually written or sorry, read the hoods. You know, I think you can learn a lot. Like there's a lot of people out there doing different uh you know, fresh things with writing. Uh in fiction as well. Like, you know, fiction can teach you a lot about what's going on in real life as well. Like so Yeah, because that it's fiction is inspired by something real, I suppose. Yeah, you know? that's yeah. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I suppose like I writing songs and stuff, you know. You won't write a punk or a hardcore tune if you've never listened to punk or hardcore yeah you know I mean? you need to or you don't it. you know if you're not kind of uh, socially in tune as well like mm. a lot of the punk scene like I got into a lot of the writing true punk music you know true rock music punk you know everyone has, see, has heard of the Clash and the Manic Street Preachers when they're young Nirvana all these people of course is, uh, all these famous names like um, Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, Arthur Rimbaud like you know Burroughs so, Burroughs yeah. yeah I mean Sonic Youth uh, used to always be kind of going on about different writers and stuff. So yeah, it's uh, there's there's not much. Of, I wouldn't see a separation between having done the record label and writing. Actually, I don't see it as a massive jump. Some people would say, "Oh, that's a huge jump," but it's it's very much the same area for me. It's just a that's different a really format good, of yeah, it. Yeah, that's know? a really good point, isn't it? It's still been driven by the same reason, I suppose. Yeah, you know? yeah, because like a lot of these writers would have been counterculture figures trying to revolt against something or standing up for 
um, certain, you know, um, situations that they didn't think were right. So it's kind, it's yeah, it's kind of a, 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 like a, a level of activism, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you be an activist? Would you describe yourself as an activist? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think that word scares people. It is, it? yeah. It's yeah. very, uh, what would the word be? It's very tainted, very kind of a, a hot word. Like mm. I've done a lot of uh, work with, you know, NGOs to do with human rights and stuff. Mm. Um, Did you work with Amnesty International, actually? Yeah. yeah. Amnesty International and mostly refugee groups. Uh so, I, but I wouldn't say I'm an activist uh, in the out in the streets uh, with the protest kind of style. I, you know, I do a lot of writing that I think would be kind of activist driven, I guess. So uh, that's my form of activism, I suppose. Maybe it's a stupid thing to ask you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I suppose, I suppose if you're all <laughs> activists in some form, you know, if you're active. Yeah. Something, you know, <laughs> you wake up and start breathing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking straight up activist. <laughs> Take that world. <laughs> <laughs> you're also working <coughs> on a you did work on a movie didn't you um uh human by oh, yeah. Jan. Jan Ortiz Bertrand yeah that was um around uh, three years ago that came out in September it came out the 12th of September uh that was um a pretty big project Jan Ortiz Bertrand has done a lot of uh kind of aerial photography and stuff he's done a lot of documentaries as well and it's a uh, social documentary as well like um, so uh, a person from his crew saw my uh, website and they wanted somebody who was a social journalist a journalist with, with uh, that was a, an activist basically an activist, <laughs> an activist that could write so <laughs> such a rare thing <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so they contacted me about doing work for them uh, to do with Northern Ireland um, and to try and source uh, people for interviews uh, and the documentary is made up uh, of uh, small, uh, short um, portraits of people, um, I suppose, uh, voicing their uh, feelings and different um, uh, things that are going on in their lives. So they're, you know, they're talking about pain, they're talking about joy, a lot of kind of uh, um, a human kind of... Yeah, yeah, uh, hence the name. I actually saw a trailer today, um, and I've made... No, I saw the trailer way back when you sent me yeah. that link. But I was watching today, it was like a French woman talking about she was um when she was in a concentration camp, she was a French Jew. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And she was talking about um being in a f- in a concentration camp and she she had the the star of David, you know, the doors that they had to wear, you know. Oh yeah. But she was describing a situation where she said that when they left it when you when when they were being brought from France, they could take maybe two or three small items with them. So yeah, her mother brought chocolate with her, a few little lumps of chocolate, and basically was saying like there'll be times where her daughter would be too ill to or you know too weak mm. and that she would have chocolate as a way of boosting kind her, of bring yeah. her back. Yeah, but then um they were in the camp and there was a, a friend of theirs, I think Helen, I can't remember her name, but. She was pregnant, and man, it was it was hard. She said, "You could hardly tell that the woman was pregnant because she was so emaciated and skinny, you know, that because they were being fed nothing." Yeah, she had the baby, and the mother had talked to her own daughter, and she was like, "You know that chocolate I kept for you is it all right? Can I give it to the the woman who just had a baby? Because it's going to be hard." And of course, she yeah. was like, "Yeah." So she gave the chocolate for a baby, but the, 
the mother in question but um then she describes the scene of like she she decided to to organize a lecture many many years later about the effects of it and yeah. if if people coming out of concentration camps would have had counselors and psychotherapists and stuff would they have been better off or how it would have imp- impacted them and blah 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 and they said oh that obviously would have helped a huge amount but there was no counseling that didn't exist mental yeah. health issues didn't exist but then she said the, the woman was like oh you know uh, this is quite interesting i'll um i'll i'll um i'll organize a lecture about it and okay a lot of people showed up and blah 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 and then one girl came up to speak like she was probably i don't know maybe in her 40s or 50s in it mm. and she took out um chocolate from her pocket and gave it to the woman and she was like I'm the baby, you know, that was born Serious? in the concentration camp. Man, all of that was in like a three minute yeah. window. I was like, I was floored, man. I was like. It was actually very kind of effective as a, it's probably the first thing I've seen that has actually, it's, uh, you know, in like three minute segments, as you're saying there, mm. to be able to bring out uh, so really hard hitting kind yeah. of um, teams that are taken for granted as well. Yeah. So much and so little. Yeah, you're like, yeah. It's like punk, isn't it? It's like it's a quick punk song. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? It's like yeah. it's a hit, like yeah. I sat in on um, a few interviews up in Northern Ireland, and it was like that. Uh, you'd literally be nearly shaking coming out of the room because yeah. it was. Um, I suppose the you know the topics were pretty heavy, mm-hmm. uh, very uh, serious uh, topics uh, uh, to do with Northern Ireland and the troubles, and uh, from all sort from all sides of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really kind of high impact uh, portraits, uh, but also the there's there's um, kind of aerial scenes as well uh, that are kind of thrown into the portraits as well. Mm. So it's very well rounded as well. Mm. Uh, it was in the Venice um, uh, in the Venice Film Festival, and it was launched uh, in the U- in in the United Nations headquarters. And it's in the cinemas last week in France, I think. Okay, is it going to be in the cinemas here? Uh, hopefully, yeah, they're still in the in the process of getting uh, distribution for it, so that might take a while. But uh, it looks it looks like a oh man, I it it was it yeah, it is excellent. Now I've, I've seen the the kind of extra long version of it. Uh, it went on for uh, it took around uh, six months of planning here, uh, and it was a nine day shoot. So we just travelled around from. Um, like from like Dublin, uh, up around the north, Belfast, Derry, and then down to Cork, uh, to Skull. So the last uh, uh, interviews were done in um, a small town called Goline. Okay, I don't know if you know okay, Goline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent place. Yeah. So yeah, it was um, a really good experience. And yeah, uh, yeah it, it looks brilliant. It looks so well shot. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah. it's uh, it's top stuff. Like it yeah. really is. Like, but um, yeah. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, like, get distribution over here. Yeah. Mm. So you're a lot going on. And <laughs> well, I'm, I suppose it's just a matter of, uh, you know, like throwing shit at a wall and hope some of it sticks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that fails as well. Yeah. It's great. It's good to see people trying though, you know. Yeah. Do uh, you work as well, Eamon, yeah? Yeah. Mm. I have a full-time job mm. and um, uh, it takes up a lot of time as well, of course. But uh, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm that productive with, uh, you know, with the stuff I'm doing. I could do a lot more writing, I guess. But um, it's just, you know, it's just down to time. A lot of, you're just trying to squeeze stuff in there. And sometimes you just want to stay in bed for an, a morning. Or you just want to rest or 
you know, crash out. Plus, it's, yeah, I suppose it's it's, a, it's what you want to get from it, you know. You yeah, know? yeah. Do you want it to be something that you enjoy doing and you're not for or like forcing yourself to do it, you know? Because yeah, if you're forcing yourself, it might come off. It doesn't. Shit. I don't think it works. No. And a lot of the reason I'm doing it is I enjoy. I'm like I'm not heavy into the political writing. I don't do. Uh, you know, writing or interviews about uh, politics in Syria or politics in Lebanon or the Balkans. Uh, it's a lot more to do with, uh, I suppose, a human interest and counterculture as well as thrown in there a lot. Which is something people might forget, you know. Yeah. You know, they kind of get lost over as, oh, there's trouble. Yeah. If you mention human rights sometimes, like that's why I suppose on my website there's not a lot of mention. Like, you know, the word human rights is a, a loaded word as well that seems to frighten a lot of people away. They don't really understand what it means. Uh, so Probably linked with activism Yeah You should just change The front of your website <laughs> The human rights activist And see, <laughs> and see if you get more hits <laughs> Might work <laughs> But uh, yeah See I'm not I'm not a, a purist as well Like I like uh, having You know it's There's a lot of You know If you're going to these spaces as well You're going to meet a lot of people That you'll have great fun with I went to Kosovo One of the most friendliest places I've ever been to People Dead on Great nightlife You know Total opposite to what I expected uh, so there's a lot of fun involved in going to, you know, these spaces that are a bit more obscure from, you know, the perspective of Western Europe. Plus, it's nice. To, it'd be nice to read about that, you know, read about the counterculture and read about the yeah, the mad bastards hanging around the place. There, yeah, exactly, like. and just having a laugh with people. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I think that's what I actually like doing. Is the you know, like the website is driven by that. The writings are driven by that. Uh, just um, the you know the fun aspect of. Seeing other places and meeting different people and fucking life, man. That's yeah, it, you know yeah. what I mean? like that's why I'm going away again in a few weeks and just going to have a laugh and yeah. see how it goes. And, and you're going to Abbey Field after this, yes. <laughs> Should do a little travel <laughs> model, <laughs> but uh, I might write a story about that trip as well. <laughs> yeah, put it up on the website. Be brilliant. You can link it with this interview, actually. <laughs> We'd be famous in no time. Okay, I, it's actually getting really dark in this. I should I have turned on the light. We'll call it. Um, I'll do a little few quick questions with you before we call it. Um, best album you've ever bought? Best album? Album, yeah. Uh, the Mike Street Preacher's Holy Bible. Okay. Possibly, yeah. But then there's been a, there's a lot of other ones. <laughs> That's the first one that came to mind. Yeah, okay. Best book you've ever read? Uh, or it's kind of stupid, but it's kind of. I know, yeah. It's talk and stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, Arthur Rimbaud's uh, Collected Poems Okay But That's it no You can't take it back <laughs> And uh, Your favourite movie Oh I don't know And I think mine is The Shawshank Redemption Yeah Yeah it's, I know it's kind of obvious maybe But anytime <laughs> It comes on TV Stephen King wrote that didn't he He did actually Yeah Yeah Anytime it'll come on, I'll watch it back or front to back. No bother. Back to front. Back to front. <laughs> <laughs> it's that good. Actually, I used to do that a lot uh, years ago. I uh, I got this film called um, uh, Love in a Forty Five, and it's got uh, a guy that was in uh, ER, isn't it? And um, there's another actress. In it. It's but uh, yeah, it's one of those movies you just watch over and over again. Like, but um, the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, it's good. It's a good show. Have you ever seen Bad Day in Black Rock? Classic. Is that what says uh, Spinter Tracy? Yeah, man. Brilliant. That's a great movie. <laughs> it's another one. That takes favorites. me back to Sundays, uh, Sunday afternoons back in the 80s. Yeah. 
<laughs> sad, sad time. <laughs> we didn't even have a Some of the afternoons was the best of it. <laughs> yeah. In yeah, between the butter you know vultures you, and the you know you the were corned beef. A few hours away from Glen Rowan, where in the world <laughs> <laughs> you're like the fun time was over. Yeah. I saw about the Black Rock. I can't remember. I have it on DVD now, actually. But there's a line in it that is just absolutely gold. There's a guy screaming at Pinter, Spencer Tracy. Yeah. Inside in a little cafe, you know, and screaming at. Spencer Tracy is like, am I wrong? Am I wrong? And he's being really high and really loud. And Tracy just turns around to me. He's like, you're not only wrong, you're wrong at the top of your voice. And I was <laughs> like, man, soul. He nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> but um, actually, I mean, I'm going to have to check that out now during the weekend when I go home. Yeah, I'll give you, I have it on DVD. Or I'll, I'll give it to you if you want. Actually, I won't. <laughs> Fuck you. Never see it again. <laughs> no. Eamon, thanks a million for calling over. It's been a pleasure Cheers to talk to you. Um, it's good fun. So you, people can keep up with your writings on migrate2thefringe.com. Yeah, exactly. I update it pretty regularly anyway, mm. as much as I can. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's been fun. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.